Amen. Well, guys, grab hold of a Bible and make your way with us to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. That is where we are going to be this morning. On Sunday mornings, we've been making our way through the book of Daniel, verse by verse. We find ourselves in the last chapter, and we're almost done, almost finishing up just the book of Daniel, and so longing that as we approach that here this morning, that God would just speak to us His Word. If you need a Bible here in the sanctuary, there's a page number on the screen. The Bibles are right in front of you in the chairs. If you're with us online or in the overflow, just hope you have a Bible, even if you need to open it up electronically. We just invite you to do that so that this morning we would be those who hear from God, that we would be together but looking into His Word, and that His Word would work into us. And so we just invite you into that space. With that as a name, let's do what we often do. Let's take a moment and ask God for help in that, that He would grant us favor. I'm going to lead in prayer, but I hope you would pray as well. God, here we are. Would you help us to hear from you this morning? Jesus, I think about that admonition from you, where you spoke seven times in the book of Revelation, that to him who has ears to hear, let him hear what your spirit is speaking to your church. God, I so long that that reality would be here. I thank you for the work of your spirit that comes alongside, that carries us, that opens up your truth to us. Please do that. Please just in your faithfulness meet us. But Lord, to that end, would you give us ears to hear anything that would have us not listening to you right now? Something that just hardens our heart, makes us just in, in, a, in a capacity of unable to hear, whether that's sin that needs to be dealt with right now, whether that's just physically just a touch from you that would renew us enough that we'd be able to enter into this. God, would you meet us and give us just an opportunity this morning? Would you draw us, each and every one of us, to hear from you. May you cause your word to be known to us and then what you have for us just to fully come to pass. We ask for that together and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, question for you as we begin this morning, how much longer do we have until the end? How long is it going to be till we enter into or God pulls to a close the things that are happening in this world? Well, I want to begin this morning with that and let you know that's a very common question. I mean, I don't know if it's a question that you find yourself asking. I hope in some ways, yes. I hope in some ways as you're able to kind of think about this and think about what's there, that you would find it to be a question that is being asked by you that you would say, okay, God, how much longer how much longer do we have? Now, if that's the case this morning, I guess I want to also encourage you to let you know, not only is that a common question for God's people, it's an endorsed question, specifically here in Daniel. Yeah, in the text that we're going to read this morning, we have an angel ask Jesus that question, and Jesus answers. All by itself, that becomes profound. Well, let's look at it, then we'll talk applicationally from it. You got your Bibles open there to Daniel 12. Go to verse 5 with me, if you would. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be. Wow. 
Okay, try to picture the scene. There he is. Daniel is having a vision. It's not a vision that begins here in chapter 12. In fact, the vision that's specifically recorded in this section of Daniel moves from Daniel 10 to Daniel 12. It's one long kind of just flow together of a single kind of encounter that Daniel has. And it began with him seeing this vision of angels, but of Jesus himself. Why don't you back with me up to it, to chapter 10, just see it there for a moment. Flip over there, Daniel chapter 10, verse 4. It says, Now on the 24th day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris. And I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz, whose body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and his feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Wow. Well, we gaze into this, and I just get to quickly remind you of who this is. We actually have no doubt. It's Jesus. We know that what Daniel sees is Jesus. We see that both from the description that's given there, but it's the exact same description that's given to us in Revelation chapter 1. When John, the apostle, begins to see his vision, he sees the same just kind of just vision of Jesus, and it's a powerful reality. And so we gaze into this vision and understand that Daniel gets to see this pre-incarnate Christ who is speaking into this. He's the one who's standing over the waters, but there are angels as well. In fact, we get to this section of the book of Daniel, and there's two angels, one on either side of the river. Uh, some think that Gabriel might be one of the angels. We don't know that for certain. We just know that they're both, that there are two angels there with Jesus. And that's been the case throughout these two chapters, just seeing kind of the interplay between Daniel and this and, and these that are there. Well, again, as you're watching this, it's there that this place that Daniel sees it back in chapter 12. It says, I looked and stood there in verse 5, two others, one on this riverbank and the other on the other riverbank, and one of the men clothed in linen, that is the, one of the angels, you know, you know, said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? So we get this question. Again, it's a powerful reality. We see this angel asking, and Jesus is hearing the question, and he's going to answer it. Now, just in a very simple way, I kind of want to just to quickly just give that to you as a word of both help and encouragement. See, this idea of wondering, how much longer do we have, it's a common question, but sometimes Christians almost feel like maybe that's a question I shouldn't ask. Like, is that a question that, is, that I'm not supposed to be asking? Now, can I just tell it to you? No, it's a question that's good to ask. The problem that we find out biblically is sometimes the way that we try to answer that question can go wrongly. And so there's a number of passages in the Bible that warn about what you do with that question, but the interest, the question itself is a good question to ask. In fact, it's one that, again, we need to see here. Now, we want to gaze at that question, and this morning here in the book of Daniel, we want to see how God answers that question to Daniel, in Daniel, for us. Now, I want to say that very clearly because this question is one that's actually addressed throughout the Scriptures, and there's a number of great truths that are connected to this anticipation of heaven, which we're not going to cover all of those, because again, this isn't a topical study where we're just talking about that desire. We're here in Daniel, and we want to see how that question is answered here. But on top of that, I need you to feel 
It's not just a good question and an answer that we need to get here. It's a question that really begins to pull the book of Daniel to a close. Yeah, we're almost done. Uh, we're nearing the end of the book of Daniel, and as Daniel has seen all these visions, it actually ends with two questions. Two questions that is addressed in these final verses. This morning we'll cover one, next week we'll get to the other. And the second to last question is this. And in some ways it gives us a good, almost ending to the book of Daniel that you get through all that we've talked through, and we've looked through prophecy that kind of gives perspectives of where we are and where things are going, and, and all that Daniel has had a chance to see from all the book of Daniel. And so now at the end, it's as if he's looking back and saying, how long? How long will it be till all this takes place? How long will it be till there's a fulfillment to all that is promised? And so that's what's being addressed here. So how does God answer? Well, let's back up to verse 4. Notice with me how it begins. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. I like the way it even begins. I just quickly touch it. But you, Daniel. It's as if to speak to Daniel and say, hey, this isn't for everybody else, this is you, this is, for, this is my message to you, and I think God could say the same to you here this morning. But you, I mean, regardless of what anybody else gets, regardless of what anybody else thinks, but you. You, this is for, for you to have, this is how you're supposed to be applying this, how you need to hear all that I'm saying. And he tells them, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. What does he mean when he tells him to shut up the book and seal it? Well, I would want to tell you that I think partly what's being communicated is that this is secure. It's like a double message in this little section here, but the first part of it we want to think through is there's a just encouragement to us that the message that's given to him is secure. Understand this, Daniel is not being asked to hide this. He's not telling him, hey, don't tell anybody what you've seen, because that's not what Daniel's doing. He's writing this book, and he's going to give it to the people of God immediately. We find it in the history of the Jews that they have it from the beginning. There's no instruction here for Daniel to, you know, hide those things which are given to him, but he does tell him to seal it. Now, interestingly, we understand that in that culture, the idea of sealing something wasn't necessarily to hide it, but to secure it, to, to make something so that it would be lasting and something that you could trust in. In fact, one of the ways that we can watch this happen is in the book of Jeremiah, which is just a few years before this, before Daniel's life. Jeremiah is in prison, and he is instructed by God to buy a piece of property uh, from the, the son of his uncle. And in the whole scene, we kind of watch it play out this way in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah writes, so I bought the field from Hamal, the son of my uncle, who was in Antioch, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it. Again, kind of note that. He sealed it. I took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both of that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, Jeremiah's friend, Jeremiah's disciple in many ways, who was serving with him, Baruch, and he says, I charged Baruch before them, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed, which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. 
So Jeremiah does this. He takes the sealed thing. He puts it in a, in a, in a jar that's going to preserve it. And the message that God was giving Jeremiah in those days is that this is something that's going to come to pass, that those things which are coming, and Jeremiah goes and sees all that's taking place in the midst of that. And I want to tell you there's a little bit of what's being communicated here, that to seal this, to know this, is a way of encouraging us that, hey, this is going to happen. To use New Testament terminology, I think there's an idea of understanding that the time of the end is a solid promise, a promise that God says is faithful and true. In the book of Revelation, that's a phrase that he uses a number of times throughout the book of Revelation that would look back on the same similar promises. In fact, it's how it ends. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, God would say it this way. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. He says, here's what I need you to understand. I've meant what I said. I'm going to do it. This isn't just a fantasy. This isn't just a I hope so. This isn't a maybe. This is true. This is going to happen. This is entirely faithful. And I think as Daniel begins to kind of see that, that becomes the first part of it. Now, quickly pausing. I don't know if that does anything for you. I'm just going to tell you for me personally, as I find myself asking that question, Lord, how long, you know, how much longer do we have? It's one of the ways that God has met me a number of times, and it's really good for my soul. It's as if God just kind of encourages me and says to me in a sense, hey, this isn't an if, it's just a when. You know, we're not just wondering like, is this actually going to happen? I mean, is God ever going to come back and set up his kingdom? Is, is sin ever going to get done with? Is there ever going to be an end of all these things? There's a sense that sometimes God just, he sits there and promises us. This is, this is not a fantasy. This is not a, well, you know, I kind of hope it works out someday for mankind. It's like, no, this is faithful. This is solid. This is secure. Those things which God has promised are the very things he's going to accomplish. And I don't know if that meets you in any way as it does me, but sometimes it's just, it just washes over me as a way of, of, you know, just, wow. Because sometimes when I ask the question, it's almost a desperate kind of question. Like, Lord, are you ever going to come back? Are you ever going to fix this broken world? It's like, Jim, yes, I am. You know, this isn't a maybe. This is a solid promise. That's a good thing for us to understand, and he begins us with that by letting us know, hey, this is something that is sealed. This is something that is promised, and that promise is preserved, and it's going to be. Well, at the same moment, though it's communicating that, that security, it actually has another aspect that flows through this verse, this idea that he's calling us to be those who are watching. Well, let me help you understand it. Notice with me what it says, again, there in verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So the book of Daniel's ending, and one of the last instructions that God gives to Daniel is seal the book. One of the things that makes that interesting is comparing this to the book of Revelation. Because when the book of Revelation ends and God is communicating it to John, he tells them, keep the book open that he tells us that, that it's not to be sealed. He gives it to us, you know, this way in the book of Revelation. He says, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for its time is at hand. 
that he lets us know that as we think about this, he says when you think about the book of Revelation, somehow the message that's being communicated, it's different than the way it was communicated to Daniel. Daniel was a closed book. Revelation is an open book. Well, why would that be? Well, I'll give you just a simple answer. It's Jesus. It's his coming. It's his death. It's his resurrection. It's the beginning of the church. It's all that took place that led into that. So much of that was still not clear in Daniel's day. The, the difference between the first and second coming of Christ, the, the reality of the church age, and all that was taking place that would be clear by the time that John writes his letter, much has changed. And yet much more is fulfilled. Jesus changes everything. And so just the reality of it is we live in a different space than where Daniel lived in, because we live in the days that Jesus has come. Now, that's powerful, but it's bigger than that. It's not just something that took place when Jesus came. Just the way that he words it is interesting. He tells us, you know, hey, these things are going to be kept. They're going to be sealed. Notice again there in verse 4, until the time of the end. And it seems to infer that that's going to be more understood in the time of the end. Hey, we'll talk about more of that in a moment. But then notice the very specific prophecies he gives connected to that. He says, shut up the words and seal the book in verse 4. Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Many will run to and fro, knowledge shall increase. Well, we think about this idea of many moving back and forth, and the question is, okay, what is this prophesying? What is this saying? Is it speaking of travel? Is it speaking of the ability that, that mankind would, would move quickly back and forth? Well, some have definitely thought about it that way. John Corson, in his commentary, pointed out uh, some interesting understandings from uh, Sir Isaac Newton. John writes it this way. He says, on the basis of this verse, Sir Isaac Newton, one of the most brilliant men in history, and also a wonderful believer, deduced that if Daniel's words were literally true, if man would be able to travel throughout the world, he would have to be able to travel at 50 miles per hour, at least. I mean, it's just it's crazy. You know, if this is going to happen, I mean, if this is, if, if moving to it, we're going to have to be able to move more quickly. We're going to have to be able to move at 50 miles an hour. Well, Voltaire, in the same time, a, a contemporary atheist, hearing what Isaac Newton said, said, that doddering fool, Every scientist knows that if a man traveled over 30 miles per hour, his heart would stop immediately. <laughs> Simply put, didn't happen, misunderstanding, but in one sense, what a crazy thing. I just want you to understand, sometimes we lose sight of it, how quickly things have changed. We move at a breakneck speed now. I mean, for some of you, you're like, 50 miles an hour, that's kind of slow. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, that's, that's no longer, I mean, we, we move quickly. We can hop on a plane and we can be on the other side of the world today. We move at breakneck speeds. We have Jeff Bezos about to take his own little kind of flight into space. I mean, we're moving at speeds unknown. I mean, if you could go 100 years ago, it, you know, never would they have imagined what we're doing right now. That means for almost 6,000 years of human history, they never could see what we're seeing in this moment. We are moving more quickly than has ever happened in mankind's history. That's a fascinating thing. Maybe, again, that's kind of a prophetic understanding. Maybe, again, it's pointing to this generation. That's an interesting possibility. I hold it out to you as a possible fulfillment of what's taking place in this verse. That said, I will point out that many Bible students point out that what's really being talked about in this verse isn't just general kind of things happening, but prophetic things happening. 
And so some would say that there would be a lot of growth in this, that there would be a moving to and fro doctrinally or understanding, very specifically of understanding prophecy, that there'd be things that would move back and forth that would happen in the midst of this, but a growing understanding. That's an interesting idea. In fact, add to that what he says next. He says, okay, so many will run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Well, once more, it's an interesting prophecy. Is this just speaking of knowledge generally? Is this just saying, hey, that knowledge itself will increase? That's possible. It definitely comes across as something that could work that way. And honestly, what a day you and I live in. I mean, you guys perhaps know it. We think about the, the way that knowledge is increasing in our day. Sometimes they'll call it the doubling effect of human knowledge. We could go back just to 1900. Back in 1900, knowledge was doubling in the world about every hundred years. Now, you could go back centuries before that, and honestly, it would begin to even move out into 200 years, 500 years it took for knowledge to double. But then it began to speed up. By 1945, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. I mean, just the accumulated, written, just recorded knowledge of mankind, it was growing. By 1985, it was then doubling every 13 months. Almost every year, the just accumulation of knowledge was doubling. By 2020, it was estimated that knowledge was growing at a rate that it was doubling every 13 hours. About every day, the, the amount of knowledge that was accumulated in our world was moving at that kind of breakneck speed. Now, please understand, knowledge is not necessarily wisdom. It doesn't mean we're necessarily getting wiser, but the amount of information that's being accumulated, again, in this internet kind of crazy age, is massive. We are moving at a speed just never known before. The amount of knowledge that's literally doubling in our world almost daily in, in, the, in spaces that we could just watch this and say, okay, well, that's fascinating. I mean, that would definitely be interesting if that's kind of this prophetic understanding moving into the last days. Certainly should cause us to be aware. One more time, though, Bible students in this passage kind of let us know, hey, although you could definitely look at that and see that as an application, really, we're probably talking about prophetic knowledge. We're not just talking about knowledge generically. We're talking about knowledge that would grow in the things of God, that would grow in the things of understanding this, and this actually becomes a really helpful thing. You might not be aware of this, but one of the criticisms that uh, Bible prophecy and, and knowledge of Bible prophecy faces in our generation is that people will say, well, you know, this is really something that has taken off in the last 150 years. Uh, you know, you go back to, to Christian history before 150 years ago, really the focus on biblical prophecy was a really minor thing. It's not that it wasn't there. It's not that you couldn't trace it through places of history. You can. You can find it in the words of the New Testament that very clearly speak about an anticipation of the Lord coming back. That said, in the last 150 years, it has grown exponentially. Just the understanding of the end times, the focus of the end times, and it could be that this is actually telling us that's how it's supposed to work, that the closer we get to it, the greater the understanding would be that knowledge itself would increase. Or I'll give it to you in a different way. I think Jesus addressed the same way when he simply called each and every one of us to be those who watch. He gives it to us this way. In the book of Luke, it records it. Jesus spoke a parable to them. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Pretty simple illustration, but just imagine it for a moment. 
Essentially, you're watching the trees. You know, they're kind of moving out of the winter months. There's, you know, death is beginning to kind of move away. And then you begin to see the buds, you know, just form on the trees. You begin to see things that you hadn't seen before. And the more you see of that, you know the season's changing. The seasons are changing. We're, we're moving into the summer months. We're moving into that space. It's a simple reality. And he calls us to have the same kind of anticipation of the things that are coming. He says, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near, that we ought to be those who, as we get closer and closer to the end, we see things happening in a way that others didn't see it before us that we begin to say, okay, I see those things that are happening, and that should create anticipation. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things which will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. He says, I'm calling you to this. I'm calling you to be those who are watching, or Mark would give it to us this way in his gospel, where Jesus says, and what I say to you, I say to all, keep your eyes open. Be looking Be anticipating the Lord to come back and watch for those things that make you wonder if His coming is near. Hey, let's just process this for a moment, and I want to think about it this way, because I just want to tell you I'm talking to three different kinds of people. I'm talking to somebody here uh, this morning, and you are somebody, you love the Lord's coming. Like, for you, it's like a daily thing. You read the news, and you're like, "Mm I mean, you're always aware of things that are happening that seem to be moving towards the Lord coming back. That's a good space. There's, there's dangers. There's dangers you could go too far and try to figure out when, you, when the Lord's going to come back, which you'll never know, but it's a good space. Or I might be talking to somebody on the other end of the, of the spectrum. You used to consider Jesus coming back. You used to look forward to it, but something wounded you. You were burned. You were hurt by somebody who was looking for Jesus to come back. Maybe you, you know, thought he was going to come back at a very specific moment. You were one that thought, you know, like Y2K was going to be it, and then it wasn't, and, and, and it kind of moved you into a place where you're like, I don't, I don't think that way any longer. That's a dangerous space. That's a dangerous space, and I want to call you out of it. I want to call you into a place because Jesus is telling us to watch. Now, those are two extremes, and you might be in one of those, but I'm probably addressing more that find themselves in this middle category. You're not a prophecy nut, neither are you kind of a prophecy critic. You you, you believe it, but you just don't do it that much. You don't find yourself actively thinking about it, and I'm wanting to tell you he's calling us to that, that Jesus would say, what I say to you, I'm telling everybody, watch. You should be looking. You should be aware. You should be finding yourself looking and anticipating the Lord coming back. So with that in mind, can I give you a piece of homework, honest piece of homework, something that I would challenge each and every one of you to do, that sometime today, sometime this week, you would sit down and maybe, you know, on a piece of paper, maybe on a computer or an iPad or on your phone, just try to answer the question and think, okay, if you had to come up with 10 things that you're looking at that are happening in the world that make you wonder if Jesus is coming soon, what would those be? If you had to think of 10 things that kind of like, hmm, that's an interesting thing, 10 things that kind of, you know, kind of pique your curiosity to how close we are. Now, here's the simple answer. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to that. There are so many answers to this. And it would be good for you 
to try to do this all by yourself. Again, maybe it'd be something you would do on your own. Maybe you'd share it as a couple or as a family. Maybe you'd want to post it on Facebook, or maybe you'd want to just send me an email with it. I would be fascinated to, to read that. But it would be good for you to think it through, to try to think, okay, what things are happening right now that make me wonder, are we close? Are we close? Well, can I give you a few possible answers? Now, these are answers that I'm giving. Please don't make these your answers. I mean, I'm not saying you can't use any of them, but I, I know somebody you're watching online right now, you're gonna hit the pause and write them all down and say, there's my 10 right there. That's not what we're wanting you to do. I want you just to think it through, but I'll just toss you out some examples. For me, if I were making the list, I would have to begin with Israel. Israel's fascinating. They're back in the land for over 1,900 years. That had not been the place, and so that Israel's in the land prophetically fulfilling it, that becomes interesting. Add to that that Israel is a problem for the entire world is fascinating. The Bible prophesies in the last days that Jerusalem itself would be a cup of trembling to the whole world. I think that's true. Add to that fact that Israel itself is going through its own political things right now that are interesting, Add to that fact that in the midst of it, there seems to be kind of a, a disfavor that seems to be happening almost in a worldwide way. Even we as the United States are entering into space that just less favor, less honor towards Israel, and that's a heartbreaking thing for some of us, but it's a biblical reality because the Bible says that Israel's going to stand alone that the whole world's going to abandon them in the last days. And so you find yourself thinking, well, you know, I kind of see things that are moving that direction that cause me to go, huh, you know, that's interesting. That's interesting the way that that's happening. Add to that, I could throw out the Abraham Accords and watch, you know, just these peace treaties that are happening between Israel and Arab nations, some of which we wondered if it would survive the change of administration because it really began back under our, our previous administration. It was curious if any of these peace treaties would last. They seem to be lasting. And there's an interest because they seem to be still kind of moving forward, and they seem to be a precursor to what we know as the peace treaty that the Antichrist is going to make with Israel, uh, you know, between Israel and the whole world. It's fascinating to watch those kinds of things and just go, huh, that's interesting. You know, we could add to that. We could think about wars that are taking place. We could talk about calamities or earthquakes. We could think about pestilences. I mean, can we just talk about COVID for a moment? I don't know what you think about COVID, but I'll tell you, it has been a strange 15 months. It's been something that's been unique in your world history. Some have tried to explain it away with a politic thing and say, hey, this is kind of a, had a, had a polit political aim to it. Not that there's nothing there, but here's the thing. It was worldwide. It was worldwide. It gripped our entire world with a fear that really changed the dynamic of the world. And I don't know about anybody else. Somehow, I, I just feel that there's like, okay, that just feels like a precursor to the end. I mean, it just feels like our whole world is being preconditioned towards things. And there's kind of responses in that, that at least for me, I go, huh, <laughs> that's interesting. Because it feels like we are closer than we've ever, I mean, just these things move us into that place. Hey, I'll toss out one more. You know, I think about some of the technology that we're watching happening. I think about, you know, things in our world. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is how much is being focused on, on worldwide connectivity to the Internet. I don't know how much you're aware of that. You probably are. You know, we think about even in the infrastructure kind of outlays that are in our nation right now, whether you know or not, billions of dollars, billions upon billions of dollars is being spent to improve internet connectivity so that the whole world can be connected. Add to that Elon Musk and his satellites that are circling the world. There is this focus on having the whole world connected. 
Now, I look at that, and one of the interesting things to me is I read in the book of Revelation that the day that the Antichrist sets up his abomination of desolation, he says the whole world watches him. Now, I used to think, well, that could be satellite TV, but I'm just going to tell you the internet works much better. I mean, there's a sense that you sit there and go, well, that's, that's technologically really paving a way so that the things that I see are going to happen are going to happen. Does it have to happen that way? No. But all these things cause me to go, huh, you know, I just, that's interesting. I mean, it's just interesting to watch. Now, those are some of mine. I could give more. You probably have more. But I just want to tell you, the question itself is worth your asking. The kind of thing that you would do now and every now and then, like, what, what, what makes me wonder, are we close how close are we? There should be things that move you to it because the Jesus is telling us, hey, you should be those who are able to watch the tree bud. You should be able to see the things happening and you begin to see things fall into place and you should be the one that says, I see it coming. <laughs> I can feel it. I mean, I don't know how much longer we have, but I can feel just the movement that we have towards that and that kind of understanding is one that's worth your having. I think that's partly what's being encouraged here that right here in the book of Daniel, that question is being asked, how long do we have? And on part of it, he's affirming to us, hey, this is solidly going to happen. But at the same moment, he affirms that we ought to be those who are watching for it, that we ought to be those who are looking for as the end times get closer and closer. We ought to be those where this knowledge ought to be increasing, where we're gazing at it and seeing it. So those are two good answers so far. But then he continues with a third. Let's just go back to verse 5 again. We read it a moment ago, but just for context. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. These are two angels. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, which is Jesus, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man, Jesus, clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So the angel asks, you know, how long? How long will these fulfillments be? And Jesus does this amazing thing. He, he makes this proclamation that lets us know a certainty that's happening in the midst of this. Again, you got to almost just picture this and feel this with this solemn oath that, that Jesus himself, both in honoring God the Father, promising by God the Father the reality of this. And I find myself thinking of that passage in Hebrews where God tells us when he does that, when he affirms something by a solemn oath, it's for your sake and mine. God always tells us the truth. He doesn't have to ever affirm anything. I mean, what he says, we should just believe it. But when he goes out of his way to solemnly affirm something, it's so that we could have strong confidence. Hey, this is going to happen. And Jesus answers that question, and he says it's going to be a time, times, and half a times. That's a euphemism for three and a half years. Three and a half years of what? Well, he's specifically talking about the time of the Great Tribulation. Okay, quick pause with me. Now, here's the problem. Because we just are jumping into this section this morning and not reading everything we've been reading before this, you might have lost just the context. You might be like, why did we just do that? I mean, why did you just tell us it's going to be three and a half years? Well, that's because we've just been talking about it. 
Yet at the end of chapter 11, we've been reading about the Antichrist and all that he was going to do and and all that he was going to do in the midst of the tribulation and how he was going to be conquered. Chapter 12 began with this recognition that Michael was going to stand up and and protect and, and, and work in the lives of Israel. And then it tells us in verse 1, and there'll be a time of trouble. Such never was since there was a nation even to that time. And your people shall be delivered. He began to talk about that space during the great tribulation, a space which he says is going to be the worst space in human history. Jesus affirms the same, by the way. Jesus would look on this and he would say it in Matthew 24 that that period of the great tribulation is going to be the worst time that human history has ever known that's ever been a part of that. Now, again, just very quickly for our, just make sure we're on the same page. As we worked through those last couple sections there in Daniel 11 and the first part of chapter 12, I gave you a little bit of a timeline. I'll just throw the same thing up on the screen just quickly for our affirmation. If we think about a timeline, we'd look where we are. We're right. If we were to place ourselves here on the timeline, we're there. The next thing that's going to happen on the biblical calendar is the rapture of the church, where Jesus calls those who are his own, and we meet him together in the air, and and we'll ever be with him. It's going to be an amazing moment. That will then lead the world into what's known as the tribulation period, a seven-year period of time that God begins to work, fulfilling things that he talked about back in Daniel chapter 9, where he promised exactly how long that would be. The great tribulation, or the great part of the tribulation, is actually the second half. Three and a half years of that seven-year period, that is going to be the most difficult moment in the world history ever. Worse than anything that has ever happened. That will follow up by the millennium where Jesus rules and reigns and then move us into eternity. Well, again, that's the timeline, but key for us right now is this is what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the Great Tribulation. We've been talking about what's going to take place in the midst of that, and Jesus, when he talked about it, again said, hey, that's going to be the worst space in human time. He says, if that time wasn't kept short, nobody would survive. And so he's answering that question here, that when he's being asked how long will it be, he's able to say it's going to be a time, times, and a half a time. By the way, again, that's a poetic way that describes three and a half years, that's without doubt, but it's not the only way that God describes it. Sometimes when he's describing this three and a half year period, he'll do so with months, and he'll say it's going to be 42 months, which is three and a half years. Sometimes he'll do it with days. He'll say it's 1,260 days. All those time periods go together to say, hey, we're looking at a very specific moment in human history with very specific bounds, with very specific fulfillment, and that's helpful. So that's part of the answer to the question that's happening here, but what do you and I do with that? Well, again, I want to make sure you see the specific answer, but I want that specific answer to do something more in your life. I want it to kind of roll its way out, because if you can see that, if you can see what Jesus is saying about that specific period of time, it helps us understand all time. It helps us kind of understand the end times, even as we think about it. See, the question we are asking so often is how long? Like, like how much longer till that happens? I mean, how long till the rapture? How long till the tribulation starts? I mean, those are the questions we find ourselves asking when we ask that question. Now, here's what you need to understand. The answer to that question is unknown to you and I, but it's known to God. It's something that you and I will never know the answer to, but that's something God knows precisely. Jesus would say it this way, but of that day and hour, no one knows, 
Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus would say this over and over again. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how much time we have left. Not even the angels. Not even Satan, by the way. Only God. Only God. Now, that's true all the way throughout Scripture. So we we have to understand that whenever we ask this question, we're never going to get the answer. We're never, God's never going to tell us, well, it's going to happen in 2021. I mean, that, that answer never given to us in Scripture, but don't misunderstand that. What's unknown to you is perfectly known to God. It's not a mystery to Him. It's not a guess. Neither is He obscure as if in somehow He doesn't know how much longer we have. It's not like God's up there in heaven going, you know, one of these days I'm going to get around to it. You know, you're like, one of these days, you know, I'll come back. It's just, you know, it's one of those kind of on my to-do list kind of things. No, he's like, I know exactly how long we have. We don't know how long it has, but if he wanted to, he could tell us exactly how many moments we have left that space because with God, there is a precision to his timing. With God, there's a precision to the way he's doing it so that we should feel it here this morning that as we're asking that question, even though we won't get the specific answer, that it's 1,260 days or something like that, we will get the understanding that he knows exactly what he's doing. And if we can feel that in the great, great tribulation, then it should apply into this moment that we would say, okay, here's what I know. I know God knows. God's working in the midst of that, and that is helpful. So again, I want to tell you those are key answers. So if we're asking this question, how long until the end, there are a few things that Daniel's hearing. It's not an if, it's a certainty. You should be watching for it. You should be aware of it. You should be looking, but confident in knowing that God has a perfect timing in the way he's going to do this. So those are three realities that he tells us here, but there's one more piece that is given by Jesus about the way that you and I should answer this question that's helpful for us to understand. Let's go back and read it. So Jesus is answering the question there in verse 7. It says, Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be a time, times, and half a time. And, here's where I need you to pay attention, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. This time that you and I are anticipating, looking at, it is a time for brokenness. A time that he tells us the power of the holy people is going to be completely shattered. This is a specific reference. In part, it's speaking of what God is going to be doing to the nation of Israel. There's going to be a brokenness that happens to Israel. In fact, it's really part of the point. It's part of the point of the tribulation. I don't know if that's quickly understood by you, but we think about this seven-year tribulation that's coming, that three-and-a-half great-year tribulation. It's a time for Israel. It's a time that's known as a time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time out of Daniel 9 that is a part of the 70-week prophecy given for Israel that partly what this whole thing is going to be doing is part of a transformation that's going to be happening in the lives of the Jewish people. Because here's the deal. Israel's back in the land, and that's a prophetic fulfillment. But they are an ungodly, secular people. 
Just saying that as clear as I can. They have a religion around some of it, but they have not turned to Jesus. They are a people who are more secular than actually many nations in the world, and that's prophetically true. In fact, Paul would say in, in, in Romans 11 that blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When we are raptured out of here, God begins to do a work so that Israel will find themselves turning to Jesus. In fact, we get it to us in Zechariah, as we think about how that works in Zechariah 12, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication when they look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Part of what's going to happen in the tribulation is there's going to be a spiritual brokenness to the power of the holy people is going to be shattered. And as a whole, the nation of Israel is going to embrace Jesus. That doesn't mean every single Jew, by the way. There's one of the prophecies there in in chapter 14 that gives us an understanding that it might only be a third of the Jews that says two-thirds are going to be cut off, but one-third is going to make it through. And it's very possible that in one sense it is that, but that would be a massive change. It would be an entire transformation of the nation where that would be these who embrace Jesus. So part of what answering that question is is to understand what God's doing in the midst of that great tribulation. Part of understanding how long is the great tribulation you're going to ask is, is to understand it's going to last as long as it takes to, to shatter the hearts of, of, of the people so that they turn to him. Now, it's only going to be three and a half years, but that's the key aspect of it. Now, if that makes sense, and I hope it makes a little sense, it might make more sense if we can say, okay, that's what he's doing then, and if we can see it then, we broaden that out and understand that's always what God is doing. Put it to you this way. Christianity, true Christianity, is a beautiful brokenness. Yeah, to really be a child of God is to bring you into a place that you would be completely shattered that God brings you to an end of yourself where you recognize you're not a good person. You can't save yourself. There's nothing good about you. There's no way that you can earn your way to heaven. You come to a place where what you recognize is that you desperately need Jesus, where Jesus would define it in in the Beatitudes, where we would recognize, hey, we are poor in spirit. Hey, that's the beginning. The beginning of how someone really becomes a Christian is to be broken, to be broken and recognize they need something they cannot do. They need God to do for them what they cannot accomplish for themselves. But that's not just the beginning of Christianity. True Christianity lived out continues a process of beautiful brokenness, a place where we're constantly coming to this place where we recognize we can't do anything. Jesus would say it in John 15 when he's trying to communicate it to his disciples. And he said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear good fruit. But without me, he said, you can do nothing. Part of what it is to become a Christian is to recognize I can't do anything without him. I mean, I'm so broken and my brokenness is so complete that without Jesus, I am unable to do anything that's real or eternal. Paul would see this even in his own struggle as he wrestles with his thorn in the flesh and he's asking God to take this thorn away and God tells him, no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul looks at this, and, and, and it's just this amazing moment where he recognizes, you know, it's that how broken he is, and so he'll actually apply it. He says, here's what I figured out. Anything that reminds me of how weak I am, 
How broken I am is a good thing, and he applies it out there in Corinthians. He says, because when I am weak, then I am strong. When I recognize how broken I am, when I recognize how my power is shattered, that's the place of my strength. That, my, that Christianity becomes this place that to live out what this is, is a beautiful brokenness. So what we're anticipating in the nation of Israel is what God is doing in us now. Now I quickly offer that because I recognize that's true. If you're a follower of Jesus, that has happened. Somewhere along the way, something broke you and you recognized you needed Jesus. You came to an end of yourself and you cried out to him. But I may be speaking to somebody right now and you're outside of this. You're not a Christian here this morning. And even to hear these words, they're weird to you. I mean, in one sense, you find yourself like, I don't know. I mean, that just sounds weird. Beautiful brokenness. Like who would recognize and say that's a beautiful thing? But please understand, brokenness isn't an option. Christianity is a beautiful brokenness, but to be unsaved is an ugly brokenness. To be be someone that doesn't know Jesus, you also will be broken. You will be broken completely, but it won't be a beautiful thing. See, here's the thing. We are, sin has so destroyed our lives, it's so permeated everything, that there's not anything inside of us that's actually good. I'm talking to somebody right now, and maybe you fall into that lie. And the lie kind of goes this way. You know, the kind of person thinks, well, you know, if there is a God, you know, and I stand before him and my good works are weighed out to my bad, he's going to let me in because he'll recognize I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> I mean, I try to do good things. So surely if, if there is, you know, right and wrong, he's going to look at me and say, ah, close enough. But the Bible tells us that's not going to happen. The Bible tells us that anything that you think is good is so tainted by your sin All of our good works are like filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. There's not anything that we have that actually isn't tainted by our pride and our selfishness and our brokenness, so that when you stand before God, you're going to be broken. When you stand before Him, you'll find out you actually have nothing going for you. Now, Philippians tells us that every knee is going to bow their their knee before Jesus, that every knee is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That doesn't mean everybody's going to get saved. It does mean everybody's going to come to the recognition that their only hope was Jesus, that, 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 that they are broken. But for those that don't know Jesus, it's going to be eternally ugly. I just need you to feel that. I need you to understand, brokenness is not an option. How you're going to be broken is the option. And as we watch God working that in the nation of Israel in the future, we see that that's exactly what he's doing today. And in that sense, it becomes the most applicational of the exhortations here as as we try to answer this question. See, we think about this whole idea of recognizing that Jesus is coming back. I think about how Jesus would say it. He would speak the same truth in Matthew 21, where he says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus is saying everything that I just tried to say, probably so much better than I just said it. By the way, if you have context, you have time to go back and read Matthew 21, I don't have time. He's actually speaking to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Israel that's rejecting him, and he's telling them that he's going to lay the, the cornerstone that they're going to reject, and he's going to give it to a people who are going to bear fruit of that, and they're struggling with that whole thing, and then he just talks about who he is. He says, if you fall on this stone, which is Jesus, he's the chief cornerstone, it'll break you. It'll break you. If you fall on Jesus, it's, you're going to be broken. 
You're going to be broken for your sin. You're going to be broken over who you are, but it's a beautiful brokenness. But if you're not falling on Jesus and that cornerstone falls on you, it's going to crush you to powder. It's going to be a brokenness. It's going to be an ugly brokenness. And so Jesus is telling us, hey, those are the realities that are there. Those are the things that, that we find ourselves thinking. And again, it becomes the most ap- applicable part of this because we think about everything we've just said this morning. We try to answer that question, like, how long do we have till the end? Well, it's going to happen. I mean, it, I mean just believe it. It's secure. There's no doubt. There's no if and or but. It's going to happen. And you should be looking for it. You should be looking for it, confidently knowing that God has this in his perfect timing. But if you see all of that, then you know the thing that is keeping us in this moment, this waiting space until that time happens, that waiting space that's going to be there for Israel and that waiting space that's happening now, it's because God is allowing people to be beautifully broken. He's bringing people to that space. It's why we're still here. It's why we're still going through this. Peter tells us that God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's bringing people to the end of themselves to bring them to Jesus. So that's where I want to invite you as we close this morning. Again, if you're outside of this, and this is not where you are right now, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, today we're inviting you to be beautifully broken, to recognize that Jesus is desperately what you need. Every knee is going to see it one day, but you desperately need him. And we're inviting you today to give your life to Jesus. We're inviting you today to be saved. For many of us, though, you are saved and you know him. I just want to tell you, still there's a part of this. The Christianity begins with brokenness, but it continues. And partly what we should recognize is in this space that we're waiting, God is working brokenness. He's bringing us to an end of ourselves, and we should be more quick to embrace that. Sometimes it's really that place that we find ourselves resisting, that the slow growth in our Christian life is because we keep trying to do it on our own. I mean, we keep like, okay, God, I'm going to try a little harder. <laughs> like, give me another try. I'll just, and not recognizing, God, I, I, I can't do anything without you. I am so broken. I am so needy that unless I abide in Christ, there'll never be anything good I can do. To come to an end of yourself is a beautiful brokenness, and that becomes the place that we ought to be saying, I want to be there. I want to be in that place that that in a beautiful way I fall upon Jesus. And I'm telling you, that's what he's going to do for Israel, what he is doing now. And if you're in a good space, well, you're one that knows it's coming, you're watching, you're confident in God's timing, but you're stepping towards that in brokenness. You're stepping towards that in a place of humbling yourself before Jesus and and longing that he would be everything to you. So let's close this way. I'm going to give you a moment to pray for that and invite you into that exact space. It might be, again, you that doesn't know Jesus, and you already sense it, that somehow in the midst of it this morning, what God is doing in you is bringing you to a place of needing Him. Would you ask Him? Would you ask Him to save you? And if you 